Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers who are united by a shared vision for student flourishing. Hello, I'm Scott Postma, president of Kepler Education, and I'm joined by Joffrey Sweet today, our academic advisor. Joffrey? Hi, we're going to be talking about the architecture of classical education. You and I posing as builders. Builders. I, I love the title. We were talking about this at the beginning, but I love it because we're going to talk about form and function of, of classical Christian education as well. And that fits right into the architecture. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the key ideas, I think, of thinking of architecture is how much the structure of something uh, illuminates what's it's, what it's for, right? What, right. what it's, what its function is. Uh, but then also it shapes you as you enter it. It does. Right. So a, a, a building designed for evil or for good, when you enter it, you feel that. Right? What, a, there's a Chinese word, feng shui, mm. something, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's retitle this podcast, the feng shui, <laughs> the feng shui yeah. of classical education. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, I'm actually excited about that because yeah. the idea of architecture has really taken on a different um, meaning in our modern world yes. that uh, really, I think, confuses, sends con confusion as to what a building is for and or what an education is for. You know, this touches, uh, you know, very robustly on a, a recent episode when we talked about cosmology. Yeah. Right? We're talking about the layout, the organization, the feng shui. <laughs> Uh, of uh, of classical education. Uh, so, you know, we went big. We went with the universe. Now let's talk about the university. Well, it's almost like there's a connection. It is a connection. <laughs> That's great. Well, I thought it might be fun to start with this discussion. And I don't know how our audience is going to feel about this or where their position is. But there seems to be a discussion in classical Christian education as to whether or not it's classical Christian or Christian classical. Now, maybe that sounds like splitting hairs, but I think there's something to where we put the chief um, adjective, the chief modifier, and what that means. And I'm interested in your opinion about that as well. <laughs> I was actually going to ask for your elucidation as far as let's actually make this very plain for our listeners. Uh, what would the difference be between classical Christian? and Christian classical education. Yeah. Well, I think the difference comes to where we're putting the adjective. So mm -hmm. if, you know, the first adjective is classical describing education, we're talking about the kind of education that's not modern. We're talking about an education that has a very particular form that we're going to talk about here in a moment. And then if we say it's Christian classical, then to me, it sounds like Christian rock music, right? Right. So it's a genre of music done by Christians. And so they did this little subculture of Christian rock yes. music. So the, you know, the, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we talking about, so let's just use one adjective. Yeah. Are we talking about Christian education or are we talking about classical education? And then if we're talking about Christian education, well, we can modify that, yeah. right? So classical Christian education. If we're talking about classical education, then the most important thing about it is that it's classical. Right. Right. And, and then it's Christian. So it's like mm -hmm. Christian rock music. Well, but then there's there's the question as to um, if, if we're thinking about classical Christian, are we talking about classical Christianity and the influence that classical Christianity had on education? Maybe now you are splitting hairs. Yeah. <laughs> Like I was, I was willing to go, to go like that first big step, but then. <laughs> no, I, I'm wondering because, you know, early classical Christianity is almost synonymous 
with mm. classical education. I mean, when you think of classical and Christian, if you're thinking medieval, it's almost synonymous. It's almost redundant to say classical Christian. Yeah, and you know, I, I think there are there is actual some actually some really historical consideration to be given to this. You know, we we think about the great recent pagans mm. uh, to to talk about classical education, like Adler, right? And you know, there's definitely a purposeful. Uh, skipping back to the Greeks as if the Greeks had not come to us through Christendom. I mean, it actually kind of reminds me of uh, of Gibbon's, the, you know, the, the rise and fall of the, of the Roman mm -hmm. Empire. The Christians are the bad guys throughout that thing because right. Gibbon was just mad at Christians. He was a purely <laughs> enlightenment dude. Right. And he was just, you know, the, the Christians ruined everything, right? So for him, you know, classical antiquity was pre-Christian before Christians came along and took over that world. Um, and then, so then there are classicists and classical educators with that same, uh, you know, they, they're compelled in the same way. Right. But the, the truth is when we talk about classical education, we're not redefining things when we do this, but what we're talking about is the education of Christendom, right? right? Christians who took the best that the pagans had, had built and made something bigger and better out of it. When we're talking about classical education, at no point are we talking about what you would have experienced at the foot of Socrates. Right. It's absorbed that, but it was always so much bigger than that. It was. And and it takes the best, like you said, it it, it baptizes it. It well, I'll use Augustine's term, you know, it plunders the Egyptians, right? Taking the truth that belongs to God and does it. So that's why I personally prefer classical Christian because it speaks yes. to the period of Christendom where classical education really reached its zenith. And this may even play a part for me in in being reformed, you know, right. uh, in, because really what came out of that is the Reformation, the yeah. the, uh, the revival of Scripture and and um, classical thought uh, that brought about, yeah. you know, Freeman. And I love your take, um, and I absolutely agree with it. Uh, so it's classically Christian. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, but you know, for me, it's it's sort of at a more elemental level, which is simply it's Christian education, right? You know, and and so we, we don't have to choose between classical and Christian. We should do both. Sure. But if you had to pick, right, <laughs> if you're on a desert island or someone was holding a gun to your head or whatever other, like, you know, train problem from a philosophy 101 you might have to take and you ended up having to choose, of course you want a Christian education. Right. Christian is the most important. Th that is the absolute most important. Right. Uh, and but then we should, and you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know why right. we want to unpack it now. But you know why uh, it should be a classical Christian education. So I, I, you know, you know what we? I think I feel like we've hit people with a double whammy, like you know, the, the <laughs> left and then the right. And I'll I'll definitely say that that yours, the what you brought up of classically Christian, there's so much more context and history and meat to that because it really is important to realize that you're not just choosing an education that is both Christian and classical, mm -hmm. you are choosing to be in a deep and wide historical stream of educational continuity. There's a heritage there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I think of classical education, not only do I think of Cicero and Seneca and, and some of these uh, who had an influence on virtue, the virtuous pagans, but I think of, you know, Hugh of St. Victor and, and John of Salisbury, and I think of um, Basil the Great and, and some of these, Cassidorius and Boethius even, who um, may have had their particular opinion about education, um, but in the big stream of things, there's a heritage of these, you know, these great Christians 
who brought about the the best of the liberal arts in really training freemen. And and I think that's the importance. And I, I would go so far, you know, what we'll talk about this when we talk about the function of education is to say that a classical Christian education, you know, has a particular function. And right. that, that is to create or cultivate freemen in the kingdom of Christ. Amen. Yeah. yeah. So, and let me uh, just take as a, just as an aside, dear listeners, Scott has just mentioned Boethius in a week and a half from the release of this episode. We will be offering a $20 class for oh, adults. The micro courses. The micro Good courses. Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. Y'all, it's two nights talking about Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy for adults, just 20 bucks with the great Dr. Robert Woods. The, you, you do not want to miss this. That What a great call. Well, you know, Jeff, I've been talking good. to all these families. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me deliver the plug, so I'll take care of that. Yeah. But, you know, I've been talking to to all of our Kepler families uh, for sort of like a, just an update, like, hey, it's spring. We're into the spring semester now. How's your year going and all of that? And you know, so many parents just, uh, you know, just loving the fact that we're offering uh, these little micro courses. So I, I encourage our listeners to check them out. I, I would do. I, I get questions all the time from parents saying, oh, I wish I could have had that education. Is there any opportunity? This is the opportunity, yep. you know, to get that taste. So, well, before we get into some of the architecture, um, maybe the best place to start is the foundation of a classical Christian education or a Christian education, right? And um, one of the projects that Kepler is really, you know, one of our, our big pushes is to empower families by liberating teachers. Okay? Right. That's the, the main thrust. And when we talk about empowering families, we're not talking about giving them something that doesn't already belong to them, but but really reminding them and coming alongside and helping them with where I believe education starts. Right. Back at the Ephesians 6, 4 mandate, right? Yes. Fathers are to, not to provoke their children to wrath, but to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I think there's a really important expression um, when we, you know, extrapolate from that passage. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's sort of it as an aside, but, you know, Christians sometimes have a hard time separating themselves from the world and how they think, uh, for example, about civil rights and human rights. Mm, right. And, uh, and, you know, it's become very, very current and common um, among non-Christians to think of human rights as being granted by the state, by the government, which is, you know, <laughs> yes, I love that that's your reaction. <laughs> you just burst out into laughter. Right. I mean, our rights as human beings are given to us by God. Imago Dei, baby. That's right. Um, now, but it's, it's that, that's kind of what we're doing in the, in the more limited world. I mean, it's such, we've already talked about how cosmically huge it is, but the more limited world of education, um, nobody's granting you this. You have it. It's, it belongs to you. Matter of fact, yep. it's not just a privilege, it's a mandate. It's, right. it's a command. Right? Exactly. And we, we want to come alongside and help you in that, but this is something you already have. The choice is, is, is how you pick it up. Right. Exactly. Well, when, when we look and unpack that verse, there, there's a few words there that I think are important. Um, when we, um, take the words, uh, nurture and admonition, we, we translate two Greek words that are um, very well known in, in the Greco-Roman world. When we think of the paideia, which is the nurture, uh, mm. it means a guidance for responsible living. And then we have um, alongside of it, the word admonition, uh, nuthesia, which means counsel about avoidance. So you have a, a sort of positive and a negative, right? You mm -hmm. have, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. And immediately, 
Um, if you think about the word paideia in the Greco-Roman sense, it means to be a good citizen for the state. But then immediately we see this uh, prepositional phrase, nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? Right. So a prepositional phrase gives placement or, or tells yeah. us the context. So this isn't about the kingdom of the state. Right. It's the kingdom of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think about the paideia and nuithia uh, of, uh, of the Lord, we're thinking about how to raise freemen, citizens, who live freely in the gospel, in the kingdom of Christ. This is the mandate. Right. That's the foundation. So um, one of the things that you were mentioning that is concerning, and this might take us too far off, so I'm just mentioning it and then we'll come right back here, but because in the modern world there there is this rejection of God, mm-hmm. the state becomes the God, right? right. Becomes God for right. them. So in classical Christian thinking, we know that, the state has um, the job of uh, national security and justice, right? That's right. that's what the state's job is. It's not health, welfare, and education. That belongs it's to the family. It's punishing evildoers. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's what it's limited to. The family has the responsibility and the privilege of health, welfare, and education mm-hmm. of children. It belongs to them. That is the universe like we talked about. That's the way it works. And we can't let the fact that other people are trying to do this for us, stop it from doing it ourselves. Right. Let's just have that redundancy. And if it costs us more because of that, that's fine. We need to do these other things for ourselves. We pay for our police. Right. And you know what? The police is actually a legitimate use right. of the right. We <laughs> pay right. for our police. Are you not going to protect your family? Right. Like, come on. Of right. course you are. Exactly. Well, and and I think there's a, you know, this attitude that, um, you know, public school is free and becomes very easy and convenient. Free. To, yeah. Sorry. To, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't help myself. But yes, go on. Public uh, school is free. Yeah. Uh, you know, or at least it, it seems that way, yes, right? Because yes. you already paid your taxes for it and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so there's a little bit of a... Um, can I say delusion? I mean, that, that we're under a delusion uh, in some ways that, you know, that the state is giving us the right to homeschool when right. parents pull their kids out of school. Like, okay, we're going to grant you the right, but you need to let us know. And yeah. and that's a right that they don't even have that's to right. give back to parents. Now, you know, we're not saying that things aren't complex. Right. Um, for example, I mean, you know, like the pioneers of the homeschooling movement paved the way for us not to get arrested. And some of them paid a price. Yes, absolutely. And there's no, you know, there would have been nothing wrong with standing up in 1981 Mm -hmm. and saying this, I have this right and just doing it. Right. Um, But it might have been unwise, (laughs) right? So, um, you know, each generation of, of, of homeschooler has opened this up more and more for us to force the government to recognize the rights that are already ours, not to plead before the government to concede us more rights. Right. And these rights come to us from God. And one of the dangers I think we're, you know, and we're seeing this in a lot of different cultural manifestations right now, the complexities of the situation can lead us to abdicate, right? right. They become yes. excuses, yep. right? So, um, you know, it, we're not ready right now to take the most radical step. So I'm going to take no step at all, mm. right? I'm not ready right now to change my cell phone service, to get rid of half of my electronics, to stop subscribing to service A, B, and C, because most of them I use for work or whatever excuse it is we have. I can't pull my life all the way out from this and still, you know, live in this society to the good of my children, Right. right? So then we take that idea, which may very well be correct, 
and we just do nothing at all. So you're you're suggesting that there's an intermediary uh, or intermediate step. We need to be chomping at the bit, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, it it is in fact true that our state refuses to recognize certain of our God-given rights in the Mm -hmm. realm of education. You would not be wrong to just stand and seize them all and then you make that might get fined or you might have social <laughs> services knocking on your door, right? So you, we have to be crafty. We have to be clever. We have to be as serpents. Um, but then there's also... I'm adding in the dove part. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> don't forget dove, Joffrey. Uh, but, but we can't use that as an excuse. You have the responsibility to push it as far as you can to take what your family should have from you and your wife. I 100% agree. Yeah. Well, let's talk then, if this is the foundation, right, if if the uh, nurture and admonition of the Lord granted to families by God, um, this is the foundation on which education is built. Let's talk about the architecture. Mm. And so as we think about um, the various um, parts, um, I'm, I might categorize these. Uh, there's probably more ways to do this than, than the way I'm doing it. Um, but I, I would think about that there is a function. There's a form that follows that function, and then there's a body of knowledge that would be included. Um, that That's kind of the way I've broken it down and the way I choose to think about it. Now, when I read that, I see that as an order of priority. I would I, agree. Right. Yeah. I, okay. So let, let's unpack that. So function, form, and body of knowledge in that order. Why is function first? Well, like we talked about architecture, right? So whatever something is for then the form is going to follow that, right? So the the first question we're asking is, what is a child for? What is a human being for? What is education for? So we, what is the first question of your catechism? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so on. <laughs> so let's start with the first question of the catechism, yeah. right? You know, to to glorify God and enjoy Him forever is Boom. the answer. Yeah. Yes. Chief end of man. Okay. So that's that's the function, right? Yeah. Um, and and so the if if part of the problem. And, and I don't want to spend all the time talking about the problem and not talking about the solution, because I think the solution is where we need to spend our time. But I think it's wise for us to raise the idea that part of the problem in mod- modern education is form comes before function. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and uh, honestly, I think uh, part of the reason for that is that modern education is a mold in in the negative sense, right? right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a factory production line that is punching all of us into a certain metallic shape. And that's what the state needs from us. So uh, it's about form first, right? It doesn't matter what your function in society might be. The important thing is that you all be able to fit into this square peg. You, you have to fit in and they have to create this particular form, right? Right. Because, you know, in, in statist thinking, um, we can't really define, you know, truth's relative. So we're not going to define what your function is, right? Yeah, right. Uh, as a, as a human being, just be a good citizen as we define it, and then we'll assign you a job. Yeah, there you go. Um, so if we start with the function of a human being, um, and we think about, you know, what is chief end of man? What what are we for? Then naturally, what follows is what kind of education then um, functions toward that end, right? Yeah, and it's so paramount that it's function first and then form. It changes everything. It does. Now, when we start talking about form, we're no longer talking about forcing your child into a certain shape. Function is first. What is your child for? And then, ah, behold, here's an education shaped a certain way. It's going to shape your child, but but, but the function is first. 
Yeah. Right. And so then if you know that the function is to, and you, you could flesh this out, but let's keep it as bare bones as possible. Your function is to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Then that's a check against the form of the education. Right. Does this education shape me to glorify God and enjoy him forever? No. Okay. I'm, or this aspect doesn't, I'm going to get rid of it. Right. And that's a choice. That's a conscious choice Absolutely, we have to yes. make versus so first function, different. then form. That's right. Changes everything. Absolutely. Suddenly it's a friendly human. You know, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it becomes beautiful and something I'd want to s submit my children to, as opposed to a fearsome outside thing right. that is demonically taking me away from God. Well, I had a few thoughts about, um, you know, when you think of the function of Christian education is to cultivate human beings that glorify God and enjoy him forever, then naturally, um, and, and I'm sort of hat tipping, I guess, to the form, uh, but we'll get there a little bit more concretely in a moment, but it's going to be, an education is going to be more conversationally driven than performance driven, as yes. you were mentioning, um, which is really ironic um, given um, so much of what the state's trying to accomplish that has been, you know, ironically, it's been put aside. It, it you right. know, the conversational we, because it's not measurable because you can't you can't put a checkbox next to it, and and it really just undoes the very function of the human being. And students right. constantly are telling us that you know one of the things they love about classical Christian education is they get to have conversations about these topics. Moms and dads, too, by right. the way. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's actually that's been super amazing to hear from from all the Kepler families is, you know, I mean, everyone who has a teenager right now, just stop and and picture your teenager and think of the conversations you've had with that teenager recently. I keep saying teenager because I want you to think about teenagers and how they grow and how they, they grow into virtue and into sin. And they have certain vices, mm -hmm. uh, the chance to have these Socratically led dialogues, these conversations with not only their teachers, but their peers, and to just talk about stuff that matters. Dinner table conversations. Yeah. Um, In the know, classroom. Right. Well, <laughs> I, I, we would hear from educators all the time or from parents all the time in in a, in a different kind of education where, you know, young people don't want to talk to their parents. You know, there's this sort of, well, they're just rebellious to what teenagers do. But students in classical Christian education want to talk about these ideas at the dinner table. They want to yes. talk about their, to their parents about these ideas. That's right. And in fact, the more they're having these conversations uh, with their parents not around, the more they want to talk to their parents. Right. Right. Which is, that, that's how you know yeah. that it's, it's holy and Christian, right? Is that, that we, we are not taking your place, right. right? We are building upon what you, what you want for your family. Uh, and so, I mean, and that, that's happened with my, with my own kids, mm -hmm. uh, you know, taking their own classes. And then we sit down at the dinner table and, hey, Mr. So-and-so said such and such. And we talked about this and that. What do you think, Dad? I love that. Come on. Isn't that what? <laughs> it's every parent ought to love it just yeah, for, yes, that, for that reason. So it's more conversational than performance driven. Um, and this kind of education, if, if, if the function of education is to produce human beings who love God and enjoy him forever, you know, live virtuously in the kingdom of God then it should be more interested. This kind of education is more interested in the student's ability to conceptualize an idea and interact with that idea wisely. We should be more interested in that than we're interested in the empirical data points that are meant to reflect their performance at a particular time in history. Hold on. Are you saying 
wisdom over intelligence wisdom over intelligence <laughs> and both over grades yes absolutely i know this is gonna <laughs> throw people for a loop well, I, I chose the most controversial way to put that sure right okay. wisdom over intelligence because of course we all want intelligence sure. but wisdom is paramount wisdom is what the bible wants us to have and what certainly we are not interested in is the data point right your child's not a data point their output in, in in scare quotes right. is is not is not interesting to us either not at all right their work is interesting to us as mm-hmm. teachers right right but but work is not output i find it just on a practical level so strange that we focus so much on a student's grades and how they how they're able to demonstrate a certain level of intelligence and then literally 10 years from the time they graduate or or probably much sooner than that. Nobody knows what they got in any class oh, yeah. with a grade. Nobody no, even cares. Please. I, I, I worked as a language teacher to adults mm-hmm. for 15 years. So I taught English as a second language and Spanish. Can I tell you how many, like over the, over the years, the adults that I worked with who had studied three, four, five years of Spanish had studied Spanish in college and barely had a phrase left to them, <laughs> right? Because, you know, they, they had not lived out that part of their education in such a way that they retained it. What they had done was successfully pass their classes. Yeah. Which if you, especially if you're taking a language class, I want to know how to speak the language yeah. and order food. In right, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That is the whole point. And that's the part that makes you a better human. Right. I am now a human who can speak Spanish as well as English. Right. Isn't that amazing? God is good. Let me go out and make the world better. Right. You know, that, that would be ideal. Even if you got a C, right? right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's the result, not the, I got an A and a year later, I can't remember, can't a remember thing. anything, which is, I mean, if that, that is very common. It is all too common. And what happens because we make the data point, And I say we in, in modern education thinking, you know, collectively in modern education, the data point becomes so important that teachers are teaching to the test. Yes. Um, and, the, and as much as they say, well, I'm not going to teach to the test, there's no way around it because <laughs> the administration is pushing them to yes. that. Yes. And then you get handed curricula that, right. that, you know, also say they don't teach to the test, test, but do. But it does. <laughs> yeah. So we need to be more interested in their conceptual conceptualization and interaction with an idea. Can I just take a little aside to just sort of hit again at, at something <laughs> that we've hit upon many, many times throughout these first few weeks of the podcast, which is that teaching to the test is another form of intellectual slavery. Yes, it is. If you if you are a son of God, a daughter of God, a prince, a princess, your children the same, then you want an education that doesn't teach to the test that in, that is not bound by such things, and that instead is concerned for higher things. Right. We want wisdom. We want knowledge. Our children are princes and princesses. That's the kind of education we're going to give them. Teaching, teaching to the test is, I mean, that it, I, 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 I feel even myself that I'm overstating things, but I know I'm not. No, I don't think you are at all. I love the fact that you said that it creates slaves, right? To teach to the test, it, it creates a kind of slavery to that kind of thinking where freemen 
They don't yeah. do that. This is the form that 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 forces you into a certain shape for results within yeah. you know what this what the state requires. Yeah. I yeah. met the state requirements, you know, I got to check that box. I got to get into whatever college that, you know, yeah. said I had to do this. And thing. it's not harmless. It's not like you simply missed out on something better. Mm-hmm. You became a certain kind of human through it. And we all bear those scars in this society. We do. To one degree or another. Well, you get trained. And this this will end up being a whole other, we, we could have another podcast yeah. on this. Um, but you get trained to work in the workplace, in, right. in the corporate world, exactly. in a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. So we need to be more interested in teaching students than teaching a curriculum. You know, that kind of goes along with what, what we've been saying. Absolutely. So more conversation. Even a good curriculum. Mm-hmm. You have the, uh, an excellent curriculum. That, that's great. Teach the student. The curriculum needs to serve the student, not the yes. serve, student serve the curriculum. Exactly yeah, right. Absolutely. And good teachers know that. Yeah. And then finally, we need to be interested in cultivating human beings who know how to live virtuous and noble lives. We're not interested in discipling loyal status to idolize progress or who are just mere consumers of the marketplace. So basically, you decided to sum up our last 10 minutes in one little paragraph? Yeah. Is that what that was? (laughs) So I'll just read it again, Scott's paragraph here. We should be interested in cultivating human beings who know how to live virtuous and noble lives. We are not interested in discipling loyal status who idolize progress or or who are mere consumers of the marketplace. Virtuous and noble lives. I love it. Mm. Yeah. I think we need to do a podcast on wisdom. Did you just say I love it about your own words? No, I I love, yeah, but those aren't my words. I'm just, I'm. (laughs) No, I mean, nobility. Well, virtue, of course, like I think think most of our listeners will recognize nobility is also something that gets hit on constantly by classical educators and by classical, classical educators. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and I think in, in, I know I'm doing a lot of comparison with modern and and classical because that's what we're doing, but in the modern world, nobility is almost a bad thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. You know, you're, you're thinking too highly of yourself. All right. So that is the function of education. That's what we believe is the function of education. We believe the Bible teaches that's the function of education. Therefore, that's where we, you know, we align. So then what kind of education, Joffrey, what is the form of an education then that serves that function? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a a particular trajectory, uh, a certain arc that classical education usually follows. Uh, And you can, you know, you don't have to lay it out as an arc. You can behold a graph if you wish. (laughs) You can simply mentally conceptualize it in your mind, a palace. Mm. Uh, But, you know, this is, we're talking Boethius, Cassidorius. What we're talking about is what many of our listeners will be familiar with, the trivium and the quadrivium, Mm -hmm. the three ways and the four ways. Yeah. Now, I, I want to just plug um, a sort of uh, disclaimer that I know within classical education, there's also a discussion about whether or not Boethius and, and Cassidorius's model is the final word on how to organize these things. But I do think it serves a really good model for us to look at. And the trivium and quadrivium, three ways, four ways, um, starts with the trivium grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And Hugh of St. Victor defines this form as grammar being the knowledge of how to speak about a subject without error. Logic is the clear-sighted argument which separates the true from the false. 
and rhetoric as the discipline of persuading to that which is suitable. So these three steps are the first steps in getting the kind of education. Well, let me say it this way. It's a particular trajectory for learning everything, which will allow someone to know how to learn anything, become autodidactic. Um, That autodidactic thing is so important, and we we should come back to it. But I want to take a step back a little Mm -hmm. bit. Sure. Um, Boethius and Cassidorius and the conversation going on and what, you know, whether that's the final word. Um, and, and I, I don't, so I just want to want to mention here something that adds a little more context to something that came up early in the podcast, which is that even when the pagans talk about classical education, they're talking about Christian education. Yes. There is no actual true, like this is what Socrates did. Right. Right. Christians laid this out. Absolutely. Right? They are the ones who organized everything, put the form to it. They are the ones who philosophized about it and we get to read about it. Um, it th- this is, <laughs> this is the first comprehensive universal. And, and I think, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's not a method. So even to say it's the best is sort of silly, right? right? But it's, a, it's it- such a universal, um, which is well thought out education. And, and it is fundamentally Christian, medieval even. It is. And it's tried and tested, right? So this isn't just some, (laughs) this this isn't Horace Mann or John Dewey or somebody coming up with, or or whoever's coming up with Common Core today, you know, topics that, you know, we're going to do education better than ever. This is tried and true, where literally, if you apply this trajectory to learning anything, um, you can, or, or, you know, you apply this to everything. You literally can learn how to learn anything on your own. Right. You know, so this is, this is that, that's so we're back at uh, yeah. being autodidactic. Yeah. And I only wanted to bring that up just to let our listeners know that we're aware that, you know, you know, somebody's listening and says, Oh, I don't, you know, uh, I think a little bit differently. We're aware of that discussion, but largely, um, as classical Christian educators, we really find that there's great value in this. John of Salisbury, Basil, um, I mean, we can go all the way in, you know, Aquinas, you know, going back to Aquinas all the way forward to Erasmus, found that this model um, mm-hmm. worked and worked well. Right? Yeah. So we start with grammar, right? And it comes from the word gramma, uh, which means a letter or a line. And it refers to the very basic elements of writing and speaking. And so the grammar of anything is knowing how to talk about it, yeah. right? Knowing its alphabet, you know. So uh, obviously, if we're going to learn the ling- English language, there is a grammar, right? So we learn how to put letters together to form words, words together to form sentences. This is the grammar of something, right? right? Math, we know math facts, you know, we know number, we know how they work together in simple arithmetic. So we, we learn the grammar of math and that applies to anything. Okay. Yeah. Then we come to the logic, which is that clear-sighted argument, um, how we know what is true and what is not true. Uh, John of Salisbury says that in its narrower sense, logic is the science of argumentative reasoning, which provides a solid basis for the whole activity of prudence. Truth is the subject matter of prudence as well as the fountainhead of all virtues. Mm. So we need to learn what is true and false, what is virtuous and vicious if we're going to um, apply the various grammatical things that we have accumulated, whether it be a language or whether it be math or whatever it is. Um, and then finally, the rhetoric, the ability to persuade. Um, I love Salisbury's uh, 
definition, resplendent eloquence. <laughs> uh, how to persuade anyone about what is true and not in sophistry. And, to, and how to do it resplendently. Resplendently, eloquently. <laughs> uh, and and to, to do it well, to do it in such a way that is yes. uh, both enlightening and delightful, right? It's persuasive on that grounds. And they're all, I mean, completely integrated and reliable, you know, reliant upon each other. Mm -hmm. uh, you, need, you need to see what the thing is. You need to be able to take it by its handle and see its inner workings. Right. Then you need to be able to show it out and use it in the world. Right. So if if you you know what it is, you know how it works, and then you know uh, which you know which end to point forward. Right, exactly. Which end to hold <laughs> the handle by. Right. Uh, so when I think of um, you know, for example, when I when I think of you know, people say, uh, and this is probably one of the most common questions I get. How does that apply to things like math and science? Okay. So I think of you know the grammar of math is knowing um, you know. Uh, one plus one is two. All right. right. Uh, knowing, you know, uh, a Which squared if I, plus could, I, if I could just pause you yeah, for yeah. one second. <laughs> um, if you doubt the importance <laughs> of studying uh, the grammar of things, let us recall that there are academics in today's universities oh, yeah. who claim that two plus two is racist. Yeah. Well, I, I heard uh, yeah, if, if to you it equals five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we need to study the grammar of things. It doesn't work for me, though, when I've gone into um, airlines and I've told them I self-identify as a first-class passenger. And they, don't <laughs> seem, they, they, they don't seem to, uh, you know, buy that that's my truth. We are not amused. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, with that, you've got your math facts. You know how to logically apply it. Now we can make the Pythagorean theorem, you know, A squared plus B squared mm -hmm. equals C squared. And then what is the rhetoric of that? A carpet layer who knows how to cut a corner on yeah. a carpet using the Pythagorean theorem, right? So this applies to any kind of uh, area of life, any part of life. And when we learn to think about anything this way, we can learn to learn anything. Right. Absolutely. But then if we ask, uh, we can learn to learn anything. But you know, when if we say classical Christian education, it does sound like we're talking about a certain thing. Mm -hmm. And this thing, okay, well, it has a function and it has a form. What is this thing made of? I mean, okay, trivium, quadrivium, what is that? I mean, you know, like, like, so we, okay, grammar. Grammar of what? Mm, grammar of any subject or are you? Right, so like, let's talk about a body of knowledge. Like, okay. you know, what's the, what's the, is there a canon? Is there a textus receptus? Like, what are we studying? Ah, so that brings us to the third place of our architecture, See, right? See, you, you, yeah, what you didn't catch was that I was smoothly transitioning. I know you Too were. smoothly. You did it really good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have a body of knowledge. Um, and then the argument here is, what is the canon of the Western tradition? Mm. Okay. And I would argue that we do not have a canon in the Western tradition like we have a canon of Scripture. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the canon of Scripture is obviously defined and, and clear, and we yes. know what is in it and what is not in it. Right? Yeah, and actually, I think we should be suspicious of scholars and teachers who say um, that no canon is complete without work X, mm. as particularly when they state it dogmatically. You know, the City of God is a formative book— and I want my children to read it and all my students to read it. I mean, that's that my opinion. I'm not giving the opinion of this, sure. of this uh, imagined teacher. Um, but why? Right. And, and yeah. sometimes there are different whys. That's why first we have to talk about, well, what's, what's the function? Right. Right. And so 
you know, Mortimer Adler chose some great books. And then he left some important ones out. Yeah. Yeah. Because what was he trying to do? Right. Right. He he was not interested in, in sanctifying. Right. Right. At all. He was actually interested in, in fighting that. He, Mm -hmm. he did not want Christians to have, you know, he, he had to, he was forced to acknowledge their influence upon the West, but, but that's all. And he didn't want to shape students with Christian works. So whenever a teacher or a scholar goes about, goes around saying, well, you have to have this, you have to have this, you have to have that. Okay. Well, why? What's their motivation? Yes. Yeah. What are they shaping? So yeah, you mentioned Adler, Adler, you know, and Hutchins did, you know, the great, uh, the great books of the Western tradition. Um, that's, you know, that's one set, uh, Charles Eliot uh, from Harvard uh, mm-hmm. talked about, you know, from a five-foot bookshelf, you could get a, a liberal arts education if you just read every day for 15 minutes from a five-foot bookshelf. And as, as a former used bookseller, can I just say that, uh, you know, the the many editions of those books over the years, they're super handy to have. Many of you listening may have some of them. They are the bane of a bookseller's existence. <laughs> you now, people coming in <laughs> with 70 volumes wanting wanting you to pick them up and, you know, all of them happily books that are very commonly in print. Right. Right. But, uh, you know, yeah, you're never going to offer that person the value they're hoping to get. Yeah. (laughs) So that's just a personal thing. Like those, that list of books, uh, which often get printed together. It's just, Oh man, it's, well, (laughs) it goes to show you what you were just saying a moment ago that, that certain individuals may have in their mind, what is important. So you put together this collection that outside of that collection in the context of that collection was published for maybe doesn't quite have the same meaning or value, you know, right. as a collection. You and, know. you know, one of the things that's cool about a lot of the integrated humanities courses in particular at Kepler is, you know, the teachers design their own courses. Sure. Several of them use just wonderful curricula, uh, but several of them design their own courses from scratch and have their own reading lists. Right. And seeing those different reading lists from the different teachers, even when they're teaching the same subject, right? right? right. It's really wonderful. And But what I especially like about it is that the these these teachers are behaving as magisters as masters right right and and that's that's something that all people responsible for education should be doing they should be studying to be masters and then behaving as masters not you know interacting with a canon if you know, if we're sure. going to say there's a canon we're going to interact with it we're not going to let it dictate it to us forgetting that some human somewhere actually made it right right well and i think the important things the important thing that you're getting at by these masters is they are selecting works that are going to do a certain thing in that education or in that particular course, right? Yes. So there's more than one book that might talk about an issue. Exactly right. right. And homeschooling families should, should be taking on that freedom and responsibility Mm -hmm. for themselves as well, I think. Right. So, you know, we're going to study such and such, you know, an era, uh, an idea, you know, so what are the books we're going to read? And it totally fits with that guerrilla homeschool mentality, right? right? It's not like uh, homeschoolers have to say to themselves, oh, well, now I have a program to follow. I am a classical educator. No, no. Okay. Well, let's talk about what classical education is. There are pedagogical behaviors and ramifications that come from that. Sure. Absolutely. There is a sort of a, as long as we think of it as loose, there is a sort of a, of a, of a loose canon, but we've been saying all along, you're responsible. That's right. Right. And so it's not that classical education is dictating it to you. It's that classical education is a tool. It is. It is. It gives you some options. Yeah. Um, and in particular, a platform like Kepler is giving families options 
Um, so amongst the tools, you've got all kinds of tools you can use. You have different masters who may value a particular work over another work, but ultimately the parent gets to decide what's going to be best for my child. Yes, right? absolutely. And there is, you know, th there is definitely um, a, a, a th some, some folks are quite rigid about what, what a classical education must include materials wise. Uh, Kepler is not rigid, but it is traditional. Sure. Right. So you, for example, on under Pullman track, you study astronomy, mm -hmm. right? Because traditionally, this is something that was done. And we Part of the quadrivium. Exactly. And we see it as a rich good, right? Um, but then, you know, well, who are astronomy teachers? How are they teaching? And all, all, all of that can vary. But really, there's also beyond the, the material that is that is in the body of knowledge that we're working off of, which is a part of what classical education is. You know, there's there's debate about what's in it or what's not. Okay, fine. Beyond that, which it is, it is that it uh, classical education is a pedagogy. Sure, it's a method of teaching, mm -hmm. right? And that is actually more important, even I would say, than the materials. You can't dismiss one or the other. You can't right. say one is more important, therefore we can forget, right? But but that's the it's thing. It's not zero sum. It's exactly. not this is important and that's not. Right. right. And so homeschooling families who, you know, so, ma so many of them say, oh, well, I wasn't educated classically or I went to public school or I don't feel competent to do this or that. Well, I mean, you can get lots of support, including buying a Kepler class. But beyond that, um, well, actually, don't worry about whether you read every single page of yes. the city of God. Right. Right. Think about what classical education is mm -hmm. and how to implement it and talk to other Christians who are into it. I love it. Well, we've looked at this architecture um, with the understanding that there's more than one way to build a building, right? Yeah. <laughs> but all buildings have a foundation and, and there are certain structural walls that go with it. And, um, but you have the opportunity to adorn it um, in ways that you find, you know, most, you know, beneficial and, and yeah. delightful, right? Most true, good and beautiful. That's right. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of ways we could have taken this conversation and, and there's a lot of things that we can build off of. And if, to our listeners, we'd love to interact with you and, and talk to you about any of these ideas. So feel free to, to hit us up um, at uh, Kepler.education. Uh, come by the Consortium podcast or the Consortium blog and, and hear what our teachers have to say. And um, we can serve you. We'd, we'd love to do that. Sure. And share this podcast with your friends. Yeah, please do that. So long, everybody. God bless.